This is vacation time, and Denise and I returned from a driving vacation a couple of weeks ago, 3,000 miles, went all the way out to the East Coast, and our final destination was Charleston, South Carolina. Anyone been to Charleston? It was our first time there, and it, it's a city that's very rich in history, a lot of uh, beautiful historic homes some beautiful plantations, and it was uh, really a fun place to be. One of the places that we visited by boat was Fort Sumter. Fort Sumter was a U.S. federal garrison that uh, was strategically located in Charleston Harbor to protect the city and also to control the boats or the ships that were allowed to come in and out of, of the harbor there. <coughs> in December 1860, South Carolina was the first state to succeed from the Federal Union. You know, of all the, the southern states, South Carolina was the first. And almost four months later, at 4.30 a.m. on April the 12th, 1861, Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter. This was the shot <clears throat> and the battle that started the Civil War. It wasn't a war with a federal or a, a foreign entity, but it was a war within our own country. The Civil War ended four years later, almost to the day. The number of soldiers who died is estimated to be about 620,000. While the U.S. Civil War ended, there is another very serious kind of civil war, really, that continues for the believer. And it is an internal war between our born-again, redeemed soul and our unredeemed flesh. We deal with this not only in the course of just everyday living, but also in the face of suffering and trials. Suffering and trials that can trigger our flesh to where we can be tempted in new ways to be disobedient and dishonoring to the Lord. Well, in our text today, Peter will continue to teach us about standing firm through suffering having excellent behavior, uh, both inside and outside, in order to honor the Lord and to be a witness in an unsaved and even a hostile world. So I invite you to, to look at 1 Peter. We're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. We see here this command, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Peter says, I urge you, and the tense of that is I continually, it's like ongoing, it's, it's not once and done, it's I continually urge you as aliens, 
Aliens means foreigners. It's someone who, they're different. They're from a different place. Uh, And strangers, that term is, it's a person who lives in a place temporarily. It's like a sojourner. It's a person who's somewhere, and this is not my home. People don't, I'm different. I seem odd. I seem out of place. People don't understand me. And as believers, we get that. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in where? Heaven. Ephesians 2.19 says we are of God's household. Hebrews 13.14 talks about we are seeking the city which is to come. Our home is somewhere else. And so we are aliens and strangers now that we are followers of Christ and have been born again. We live differently from unsaved people. We talk different. We behave different. We, we love and long for different things compared to those who are without Christ. And then Peter says that we are to abstain or to stay away from fleshly lust or evil desires. Well, what are fleshly lust? The deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5.19 tells us. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. These are the the deeds of the flesh that Peter says we are to abstain from, we're we're to run away from, turn against, constantly fight against these things, and continue to have victory over them. And it says these fleshly lusts which wage war. In other words, and that's a present tense. It means it continues to happen. It keeps on aggressively battling. That's the idea against the soul. Against who we are on the inside. The inner self. You remember that Paul spoke in Romans 7 about this war that was raging for him. In his mind, he had this ongoing struggle. I mean, the Apostle Paul, you think surely he he didn't have internal struggles. He did. But he established earlier in Romans 6, 6, he said, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would, what? No longer be slaves to sin. The battle is still going on, but because we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer in bondage. We do have the ability through Christ uh, to conquer in greater and greater ways these fleshly lusts and struggles. Now, our flesh can be aroused by mistreatment from unbelievers as well as just other kinds of difficult circumstances. We can get mad. 
We can get envious. We can react in anger. But Paul reminds us the way to, to not do these things. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Number one, you have to be filled with the Spirit which comes at salvation, but you have to walk in a pattern of obedience and have your mind filled with the Word of God. You have to... You can't just empty your mind of, of lustful thinking and temptations. You have to fill it with something. And the thing to fill it with is constantly is the Word of God. In verse 12, Peter tells us, commands us to keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a command. Keep your behavior excellent. In other words, morally praiseworthy uh, by others. And it says among Gentiles. Now, Peter is writing this letter actually mostly to Gentiles. There would be some Jews, but it's strange that he says among the Gentiles, that would clearly be understood to mean unbelievers. When you're writing to uh, saved Gentiles and you talk about Gentiles, you, it's very likely a reference to unbelievers. So that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, what what kind of evil things were said about the original recipients of Peter's letter? What would they be complaining about with Christians? Well, they would say they're rebels against the Roman Empire. Uh, they were, it seems like they were responsible for setting Rome on fire. They're not worshiping Caesar like people are commanded to do in the Roman Empire. Uh, some would say they're cannibals which comes from hearing about taking the, the bread of the Lord's flesh and drinking his blood, the words from the Lord's table. They would misconstrue and uh, have rumors of them being cannibals, love feast, opposed to idols, and those kinds of things. What about now? Do, does the unsaved world criticize Christians, talk about believers? And say evil things about believers. I mean the list is long. But some things I've you know heard. Some even recently. Well Christians are simplistic. They're just simple minded. To have that kind of faith. To believe the Bible. They're needy people. They need a crutch in life. They don't accept science. They don't accept the evidence of. Uh, you know, evolution and those kind of things. They're isolationist. They're intolerant. They're extremist. They're judgmental. They're homophobic. All these kinds of, of attacks. It, they're slandering Christians when they do that. And so that's why Peter says we're to keep our behavior excellent. So in the, the thing where they slander you as evildoers because of your good deeds, 
it says they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the New Testament usage of the day of visitation, that conveys blessing. And the day when God blesses you talks about salvation, deliverance. This is clearly here a reference to the moment of salvation. The moment when God initiates saving a person. And, and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, regenerates their heart. <clears throat> Peter is telling the believers that they must have a, a daily manner of life that is morally lovely and praiseworthy among those who are hostile toward them. And even though they are slandered by many, those whom God later visits to bring salvation will in that moment praise God for the example of virtue, the example of obedience of believers who have maintained and, and demonstrated excellent behavior. That's the point Peter is saying here. MacArthur writes, effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. In our separation from the world, there, there can be this temptation to think that we're not subject to authorities. Have you known people like that? Uh, maybe you've been tempted, particularly when those uh, authorities, those people in authority, they're unbelievers, they lack wisdom, they lack virtue, they're unkind, all of these things. There can be some believers who think, you know, I can do better than that. I should be in their position. And they, they think they can just kind of take over and they're not subject to those authority structures that God has put in place. Well, Peter is going to tell us here, beginning in verse 13, and this covers most of our uh, the text that we're going to look at, that we're to submit to every institution established by God, every human institution. Verse 13 just the beginning of it. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now submit means to obey. To place yourself under. And willingly do that. Not by force, but willingly. Submit to what? To every human institution. And this would be understood as those, uh, those human authority structures that God has put in place. And we're going to talk about those. All of the human authority structures that God's established except for the church. We're not talking about that here in this particular uh, passage. And then he says, why? Why should we do this for the Lord's sake? What that term means is on behalf of or for the benefit of, for the Lord's honor. That's the idea. You, you do these things, you show this proper Respect and submission for these human in, for every human institution that God has established for the Lord's honor. Do you want to live for the Lord's honor? If your answer is yes, then your manner of living must place yourself under the authority of these human institutions that we're going to talk about that God has established. So Peter here, he's going to talk about three areas. Submission to civil government. Submission at work. 
and submission in the home. Let's begin with submission to civil government. Continuing there in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. He's saying every believer is to place himself under the authority of all levels of government. He mentions the king. I mean, that would be the top person in charge, whether a president or a, an actual king and a monarchy. And it talks about governors appointed by him. So these would be lower level rulers who are put in place as part of the structure of civil government. So for us, that means all city, county, state, and federal entities. All levels of civil government we are to submit to. Paul in Romans 13.1 writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God established Government for our text says the punishment of evil doers. So a core function and purpose of government is the to restrain evil by punishing those who do evil things. And then it says and for the praise of those who do right. In other words to promote good. That's the two key functions of government to restrain evil and promote good and what's really sad is when a government in various ways promotes evil and punishes good I mean do we not see that happening today not only in our own country but really around the world some might say I can't obey I can't be respectful to ungodly government or leadership just can't do it I, I just can't handle it well let me mention a couple of things God allowed Nero when Peter wrote this Nero was emperor of Rome this guy was so ungodly so ruthless Roman society was was evil it was rampant with immorality and yet it was in that context that Peter is giving these instructions to believers. He's saying submit to Rome. Now there's, there's some exceptions we'll talk about. But just keep that context in mind. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to be king in Babylon. God allowed Herod and Pilate to be rulers during the time of Jesus. So evil rulers, horrible rulers have come and gone. So we shouldn't be surprised. But nevertheless, Scripture tells us to submit to government. Now, certainly there are limits. We, we never obey when we are commanded to do what God forbids or when we are commanded to not do what God commands, right? So we're always to be obedient to the Lord. Remember what Peter and the apostles said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.29? We must obey who? God rather than men. 
In other words, there, there's limits to our submission. But it's, it would be clearly based on the instruction and commands of the Lord. Beyond these exceptions, Christians should never be part of breaking the law. I know we speed sometimes. And those, you know, we do that. We pay our fines and we, we reset, hopefully. Uh, but believers are, folks, believers are to pay their taxes. Believers should never cheat on their taxes. Believers are to obey the law. They're to obey the police. Do what they're told. And they're to be, hum- they're to be humble and respectful to elected and appointed government representatives, even those who are ungodly. Today, biblical Christians, we can all agree, identify as conservatives, at least on moral issues, right, in the context of of our current society. But folks, please keep in mind that there are many non-Christian and even ungodly people in the conservative movement. Would you agree with that? Being conservative does not make a person a Christian. So be extremely careful about opening up your mind and following conservative personalities. Many of whom uh, will lead you into thinking and acting unbiblical unbiblically and contrary to the instructions of scripture so be careful about who you listen to verse 13 tells us that being a good citizen pleases the lord and works to silence the attacks of foolish people verse 15 for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men Proper submission not only honors the Lord, but it it says here it it also works to silence those who are attacking believers. Why? Well, because the believers are seen as having excellent behavior. They're, They're above reproach. They're doing what is right. And that term means what is good. In the eyes of of all people, they are outstanding citizens. Christians are called to be outstanding citizens always. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. What he's saying here is freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to sin. You can't take matters into your own hands and act like you're now in charge and you've got to right the ship. Jesus says in 8, John 8, 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I mean, do we not have freedom in Christ? Wow. What are, what are we freed from? We're freed from the eternal penalty and judgment of our, of our sins. We're freed from the bondage and enslavement to sin. We're free from condemnation. We're freed from the power of death over us. But freedom in Christ does not mean that we can act like we want and act in in ways that are according to the desires of our flesh. 
Folks, don't think that you can rationalize disobeying and being disrespectful to the authorities in your life. Don't do some mental exercise that, that says, you know, I'm taking over. I'm, this is, you know, a particular exception. There are some exceptions we'll talk about. And we've talked about doing things that are disobedient uh, to, to God's word and, and to conscience. Verse 17 says, show honor and submission where it is due. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Show honor and submission where it's due. And he, he's, Peter's listing here all these areas. It's really a beautiful statement. Christians are to honor all people. Every one. People are made in God's image. They are image bearers, even those who are unsaved. And they are to be valued. Every person. Christians should not hold any bias or prejudice views of people based on externals. Things like their, their ethnicity, their gender, their size, their social standing, financial standing, mental, physical capabilities, education, and the like. Christians are to love other believers. It says love the brotherhood. And that, that's, we see that over and over in Scripture. Believers are to be known about how well they love and care for each other. Christians are to fear God. And that's having a, a reverential awe. Not fear in the sense of afraid and you withdraw, but it's a, uh, it's a reverential awe in light of his power and holiness. That's the idea. But yet you're still welcomed by him. That's what's different. This is, a, this is where we trust him. We, we do the things that seek to honor him. That's how we show proper fear of God. And Christians are to honor the king. We're to show proper respect, which includes having a submissive attitude for those in charge over us. Well, that's submission to social government. And then beginning in verse 18, we see submission at work. So let's dive into that. You know, we live in a, a time where workers can often rebel against their employer, either in overt ways, you know, walkouts, pickets, those kind of things, or in subtle ways, like having a bad attitude toward your boss or just being a difficult employee. For the Christian, that kind of behavior is sinful. It doesn't mean we can't participate in providing feedback, you know, in respectful ways to uh, the people or the company that we work for. There are provisions and right ways to do that. But it's respectful. The bottom line is that a believer's behavior must be excellent in the workplace. Your reputation as a worker from your boss and up and your coworkers, everyone around you should be excellent according to biblical standards. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your own masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, 
but also to those who are unreasonable. Servants, and I'll talk about how we apply that as workers, are to submit to both good and bad super superiors. This term servants, that's, it's the basic term for household servant or slave. And the context here certainly would have related to slaves. Now, let's talk about that. Because it can be difficult for us to, to really, to rightly understand slavery in the first century. We all know about past American slavery, which was uh, really based on kidnapping, which was utterly condemned in Scripture. And, but the slavery that was common in the first century was different. It wasn't based on kidnapping. Dr. Arthur Ruprich, who has studied slavery in the Roman Empire, he tells us that slaves were commonly on par with their freeborn counterparts in terms of food, clothing, shelter, and spending money. In fact, many slaves were actually better, especially when there were some hard economic times. If if their master was still doing well, then they were doing well. The, there's evidence, strong evidence, that shows that freeing a slave after a period of time was very common, at which point their, their former owner might loan or give them money to get them established in business. So clearly there were, there were slaves who lived under well or good conditions because they had prosperous and and uh, considerate good masters but there were also others who who struggled under harsh masters and that's that's who Peter is addressing Peter is addressing Christian slaves and telling them that their freedom in Christ does not remove their need to show excellent behavior toward unbelieving masters now this principle that that we draw out of this it applies to our employment situation as employees working for someone else and in the workplace when we work for others we should not be defiant we should not be a hard person to deal with we should not be the type who's protesting threatening shouting or just being difficult that kind of behavior in the workplace is dishonoring to the lord it is not excellent behavior from God's perspective. You might have co-workers that cheer you and say you're justified. It is very dishonoring to the Lord. As long as what we're, we're being told doesn't violate scripture or conscience, we should be submissive in the workplace. In verses 19 and 20 talk about doing what is right under hard circumstances and how that finds favor with God. Verse 19, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it you, patient, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If you're ever mistreated at work, remember Romans 12, 17 and 18. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone 
Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Doing the God-honoring thing and submitting in the workplace, even when it's hard, the text says it finds favor with God. So we've looked at submission to civil government, submission at work, and then let's move to chapter 3, and we're going to look at submission in the home. Now, I just skipped some verses. We're going to come back as part of wrapping up this morning, and I'll, I'll tell you why later. But let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. We see here at the beginning of verse 1 that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. It says, in the same way, and that really is in a, in a reference to to the example of Christ's submission and obedience, which that's the piece we're going to look at next. But this follows that. So in the same way, and what he's just talked about in terms of the example of Christ, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Now remember the context. Having excellent behavior, especially when? During trials and suffering during hard times, hard circumstances. And certainly this, this command applies to all Christian wives, but the key focus here is regarding a Christian wife married to an unsaved husband. You see, in the first century Roman world, the wife and children would adopt the religion of the husband. They would, they would worship the God or gods that, the husband worshipped. That was part of the culture. And think about it. A wife who came to Christ after getting married and she, is, she now tells her husband, I can't, I can't worship that God anymore. I can't offer sacrifices. I can't go with you to do that. I don't support that religion. I think it's wrong. I think it's false. And instead, I'm, I follow Christ. He is the, the Messiah. Well, a wife who came to Christ like that, to, a, to an unsaved Roman husband, uh, in the, husband in that, that Roman world, that wife would be a great offense. Because, I mean, think about it. He could lose his social standing. He could be ridiculed by those around him. Why isn't your wife doing what everyone else is doing? Why, why is she not following uh, your God. So let's let's also be honest. When we look at this this passage, wives be submissive to your husbands. There may be some who, frankly, just cringe at this instruction in Scripture. You know, based on based on history, perhaps you had a father who showed very ungodly behavior in the home. And, and you just, for some reason, you can't rationalize 
how it would seem to be right that people would have a, that the wife would have a submissive manner toward that kind of person. Perhaps you know of wives who live with terrible husbands. And there are many. Perhaps you have, I'm not saying in this church, but just as a general statement, perhaps you have been influenced sometime in the past by feminism. Feminism which utterly scoffs at the man being the leader of the home. Feminism that sees the man as a bozo. Someone to to ridicule and make fun of. Well, let me give a a few comments just to address these, um, some of these initial reactions. First of all, Scripture teaches the spiritual equality of men and women. I mean, you can look at Galatians 3.28. There's total equality before God in terms of spiritual access, the scope of our redemption, the promises of God, spiritual, you know, the ability to, to serve the Lord in different ways and pray and have access to the throne of God. As we've seen, God has established order and roles within human institutions. We've been looking at that. Folks, God is a God of order. You, you have to understand that. God is a God of order. There is order in the Trinity. There's perfection in the Trinity, but yet there is order. There is no member of the Trinity who is less important than the other. They are all equals. Christ submitted to the Father. Was he inferior because of that? Absolutely not. A submitting wife is not inferior to her husband. Yet she is called by God to submit to the order that God has established in the home. And as we've, we've already mentioned, there are limits to submission. If a husband's behavior crosses the line of breaking the law or violating God's word, he can and should be held accountable, both to the law as well as to the elders of his church if he is a professing believer. And if there happens to be any single ladies in our class, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that if you ever come to the point of considering marrying a man, make sure he is a solid believer. Don't don't just trust the fact that he comes to church. There's a lot of men who come to church that are horrible at home. You, and it takes time. It takes time to understand the real heart of a man. And it is very, very wise to ask for counsel from other people about what they see in that man's heart. So marrying a Christian man, hugely, hugely important. We see, as verse 1 continues, that a wife's pure and respectful behavior gives strong testimony to an unbelieving husband. He says, submit to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, talking about an unbeliever, they may be one, in other words, they may come to faith without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chase, in other words, your pure and respectful behavior. Peter is telling us that 
the pure and respectful behavior of a wife, especially under difficult and trying circumstances, that is a hugely powerful testimony of faith. And it impacts people. It, it may be the very thing that God uses in bringing the husband to salvation. It can be something that God leverages um, in that process of saving that husband. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. The word for dresses just means fine clothing. But let it, in other words, let your adornment, let what you want to be on display most for others to see, let that be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He's saying wives must strive most for the adornment of possessing a gentle and quiet disposition, which is precious to God. That word gentle, it means humble. Just a humble spirit, a humble manner. Quiet, it means tranquil. It means peaceful. When, when your environment is not peaceful, you have a heart and a disposition that is steady and peaceful because you, you know whom you seek to honor and whom you are trusting. It's okay, ladies, by the way, to look presentable uh, and to show care for yourself. That's appropriate. We all, we all appreciate that. But the point here is what you really value the most and who you are most interested in pleasing and, and how you present yourself and how you are to be known. The most passionate pursuit of beauty for the Christian woman should, should not be anything on the outside but developing her own godly character. That's what Peter is teaching us. Uh, there's an extended family member, I won't name who it is, but when he was around four or so, he, he was in the lap of an elderly aunt. And he grabbed the aunt and by the cheek and he said, uh, he said, Aunt so-and-so, did you know you have quacks in your face? <laughs> Referring to wrinkles. Uh, she was not pleased with that. You know, beauty fades. We, we change over time, right? And uh, we know what happens. But the quality that Peter is speaking of here, it says it's imperishable, which means it's lasting. It doesn't degrade over time. And it is what in the sight of God? Precious. Highly valued in the sight of God to see women, faithful, godly women who have these attitudes, even when they're enduring difficult circumstances. Verses 5 and 6 uh, instruct us, instruct wives to follow the example of faithful women who have gone before you. Verse 5, For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves 
being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Peter, he's speaking of former wives who, who lived well. He names one of them. He names Sarah. It says uh, she called Abraham Lord. Well, I'm seeing, seeing some smiles. We don't exactly do that. Well, uh, folks, just as an aside, Whenever you read something in Scripture and it just kind of catches you the wrong way and you think, I need to just skip that verse, you never have to skip a verse in Scripture. You never do. There is always uh, a correct way to understand it. There's nothing you're going to find in Scripture that's going to shake the foundation of your faith or, or be objectionable uh, for a true believer. So, In that time period, the, to call someone Lord or my Lord was an address of respect. It seems, I know it seems odd to us today, but it wasn't odd. When, when the recipients of this letter read that, that was not an odd statement. It, it's one that demonstrated humility and how Sarah related to Abraham. And when people said that, it was offered and both received as an expression of honor. I did a search in my Bible software for my Lord. And of course, there are uh, you know, a number of references speaking to God. Many, like a hundred plus in Scripture. That's not talking about uh, addressing the Lord. The sons of, of uh Seth called Heth called Abraham my Lord Rebecca to the servant of Abraham who was sent to find a uh, a wife for his son she called this stranger my Lord Rachel called her father my Lord Joseph's brothers called Joseph my Lord Joshua called Moses my Lord Ruth called Boaz my Lord and it, it was spoken often to kings and also to angels. So it was sp spoken in all kinds of context as simply a humble expression of honor and respect. That's it. So ladies, in whatever manner you see appropriate, the bottom line is show honor and respect in how you talk and interact with your husband. In verse 7, we see that husbands also are to honor their wives and live with them in an understanding and respectful way. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, that would be going back to Christ's example, which we're going to look at in the uh, coming up. In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. It says husbands are to be understanding. That word means perceptive. Ladies, wouldn't you like your husbands to be a little more perceptive? They can be kind of uh, dense sometimes. I know I can. That's the idea. <clears throat> He's saying husbands, be understanding, be perceptive. 
Seek to understand what's going on in your wife's mind in terms of her, her desires, her hurts, her concerns, the things that she cherishes. Everything about her. Seek to be perceptive. We're to do that in how we interact with our wives. What is the opposite? It's not caring at all what your wife thinks. It's my way or the highway. That is the total opposite of what's being commanded here. Now it says, do this to your wives as with someone weaker. Okay, another verse you might, some red flag might raise up. No worries. Let's work through it. This is not a reference to character. It's not a reference to intellect. It's not a reference to skill uh, or being weaker spiritually. It is simply a reference to physical strength. By and large, men are stronger than women. That's just the way God made us. There are exceptions, but overall, men are stronger than women. Women are weaker physically than men. That's all he's talking about. This is not derogatory toward women. I mean, ladies, look at this. Look at the whole statement. It lifts up the dignity of women and how they're to be treated with respect and honor. As someone, it says, to share in the, the grace of life. I think, you know, grace, uh, grace is a gift. I, I think the meaning here is not talking about eternal life, because really the whole context is dealing with kind of a harshness perhaps or difficult times in marriage, particularly those who are with unbelievers. I think it's just a reference to, to being um, with someone who's sharing the, the gracious gift of marriage. That's, that's the grace of life, I think, that's being referred to here. Now notice the warning. Husbands, treat your wife like this so that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, this is serious. If you are not treating your wife well, God will not answer your prayers. Very serious that you reflect on this. Well, we've looked at submission to civil government. We've looked at submission at work. We've looked at submission in the home. And I want to go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 21 to 25 and we'll do this quickly because this talks about follow it's a command really to follow Christ's example of submission and obedience Peter's laid out all these areas where we are to submit we're to submit for the Lord's honor he's told us that but wow when we we see what's about to follow in terms of Christ's example it it helps it be a little bit more concrete in terms of what the Lord expects of us verse 21 for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you he says Christ endured incredible suffering for your spiritual benefit You're called for this purpose to honor the Lord even when suffering, even under difficult trials and circumstances. Continuing in verse 21, leaving you an example, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ gave us an example. His life was the ultimate example of submission, of godly behavior when suffering wrongly. Christ was always under control. He never lost it. He never acted in a way that was sinful in his response to suffering. Verse 22, still speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. It's saying that Christ, though perfectly innocent and wrongly treated, he did not sin in return. He kept his behavior excellent and honoring to God the Father. And continuing on in verse 23, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ totally entrusted himself to God the Father who he, he knew would ultimately make all things right. And finally, in verses 24 and 25, Christ suffered for our redemption. That was the ultimate benefit. And it was all according to the purposes of God as to why he suffered and why he was obedient to the end. There was a reason there was a master plan in place. Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Man, those are two beautiful verses, aren't they? It's the heart of, of Christ's work of redemption for us. Peter is not just saying that this in general or as general statements, but it's also in the context of Christian behavior and submission, especially in the face of suffering. He's saying we are no longer slaves of sin. You have been set free from that bondage. Do what is right. Keep your behavior excellent among the, the hostile and unbelieving world. Godly living is what we have been saved to do. Well, just like the example of Christ, when we submit to godly living in the face of various hardships and, and trials, God accomplishes his plans in and through us for his honor and glory and you may not fully understand why, but um, one day, at least in glory, you will. You'll, you'll understand what God was accomplishing through your obedience. We've looked at this. This is our outline. Having excellent behavior in an ungodly world, abstaining from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul, keeping our behavior excellent, among unbelievers, submitting to every human institution that God has established, including submission to civil government, submission in the workplace, and submission in home, with, with the example that Christ gave. 
for how we are to submit and be obedient for God's honor and um, for his ultimate purpose. My question to you is how are you doing? In each of these areas, how are you doing? What do you need to do differently? What do you need to confess to the Lord? There's some things I confessed this week in preparing this. It was convicting in terms of attitudes uh, in some areas. And we all need to do that. We need to examine ourselves to ensure that we're representing the Lord well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this inspired writing of Peter in which you instructed us to on how to live well in a, a hard world, a hostile world. And Lord, it's our prayer that as your people, you would continue to grow us, show us our areas of weakness, areas where uh, whether behaviors are external or whether they are just inward attitudes that, that need to be corrected to show proper submission to your instruction so that we would live in a way that's pleasing to you and that our lives would, even in silence, in just the way we live, they would reflect well on you and upon the gospel. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.